We've been studying spiritual gifts, and we're going to continue our study of spiritual gifts. And I want to begin, um, first of all, let's pray, okay? Lord, thank you uh, for this country. Thank you for the freedoms that we have. Um, And Lord, thank you that we can meet in a public school, rent the school, proclaim the gospel, uh, worship you, and um, we pray, Lord, that those freedoms would continue uh, for many, many years ahead. Uh, thank you for the blessings of the country, for those who have uh, fought to keep it free. And uh, now, Lord, as we open your word, we ask that you would give us clarity of understanding um, so we can apply these truths to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Speaking of uh, our country and wars, I'm going to take you back to World War II. In Germany, the Jews were being loaded up on trains and taken to concentration camps, and they were being exterminated. There was a Gentile German by the name of Oskar Schindler who realized that his Jewish workers were being put on trains to go to their death, and he started buying them back from the Nazi prison guards and putting them to work in his factory, saving their lives. He saved 1,100 Jews from going to their death. Speaking of Spielberg, he made a movie called Schindler's List. And here's the last scene of the movie. Schindler says, I could have gotten more out. I could have gotten more. I don't know if I just, I could have gotten more. And his friend says, Oscar, there are 1,100 people who are alive because of you. Look at them. Schindler says, if I had made more money, I threw away so much money. You have no idea. If I just, there will be generations because of what you did. I didn't do enough. You did so much. He looks at his car. This car, Gorath would have bought this car. Why did I keep this car? Ten people right there. Ten people. Ten more people. Removing his Nazi lapel pin. This pin. Two people. This gold. Two more people. He would have given me two for it. At least one. One more person. A person. Stern for this. Sobbing. I could have gotten one more person and I didn't. And I, I didn't. As we look at spiritual gifts kind of the framework upon which I want us to view the concept of spiritual gifts is the parable of the talents. We've looked at that parable many times. Basically, the parable of the talents is this. God has given every one of us resources, and we're to use those resources to advance the kingdom of God. And then we will stand before God on one day um, and give an account for how faithful we were using the resources he has given us to advance the kingdom. And we should long to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. What we don't want to say is, why didn't I do more? Why did I spend so much time on me not advancing the kingdom? Now let me make it very, very, very clear. 
We're not talking about salvation. We're not talking about earning salvation. Jesus died on the cross to pay for our sins. You are saved by believing in Christ. You are saved by faith alone in Christ alone. The thief on the cross had no works to show, but he believed in Jesus, and he was told by Jesus, you will be with me today in paradise. You are saved by faith alone. But what God does is he blesses us by taking our works, the things we do to advance the kingdom, and he rewards us. And it's not a one-to-one reward. It's a a multiplication of reward. We do a small thing like give a cup of water in the name of Jesus, and he rewards us with the glories of heaven. All right? So here's what I don't want us to do. I don't want us on that day of accountability to say, why didn't I do more? Now, One way to maximize what you do for the Lord here on earth is to know what your spiritual gifts are. If you are a believer, the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. He has given you gifts. Now, they are really not, and by the way, there's a list of gifts in 1 Corinthians 12, in Ephesians 4, and Romans 12, and we're just going to go through each, uh, each gift and explain what they are, and your goal is to find out uh, which gifts you have. Um, but they're really not your gifts. They're the church's gifts. Christ has given gifts to the church through you. So Paul says this, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So you can't take your gift and put it in your pocket. The goal is to find out what your, your gift is and use it to serve one another. Okay? So, Um, what we want to do is go over each of the gifts so you can find out what your gift may or may not be. And then the ultimate goal is to use it to serve in the church. Okay. Now, last week we covered the gift of pastor-elder, the gift of teaching, the gift of leading, and the gift of administration. Today, I want us to take a look at... First of all, the gift of evangelist. What's the gift of evangelist? And that's listed in uh, Ephesians 4.11. It's the gift of being able to effectively communicate the gospel to unbelievers, either individually or in mass. Doesn't mean in Roman Catholic mass. It means in groups. Okay. Now, a lot of people, when they hear uh, the word evangelist, they go, well, well, that's Billy Graham. I've never spoken in front of 60,000 people before. That's not me. Okay? But notice, evangelists can be in mass or individually. In fact, in the book of Acts, Philip is called an evangelist. And he does, uh, he speaks the gospel both to large groups and one-on-one. In Acts 8, 5, Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed Christ there. So he leads a lot of Samaritans to the Lord through public speaking. But then there's the Ethiopian eunuch riding in a chariot, and it says, Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. 
do you understand what you're reading, Philip asks. And he says, no, I don't understand it. So Philip hops up into the chariot and he explains Isaiah 53, that it's all about Christ one-on-one, and he leads the Ethiopian eunuch to the Lord, and he baptizes him. So evangelists don't think, well, um, I don't speak in front of large groups, therefore I don't have this gift. Do you have kind of a natural knack for talking about the Lord to other people? That might mean you have the gift of evangelism. Now, let me point out that with a lot of these gifts, they are both individual gifts that some people have, but at the same time, general responsibilities that all of us have. Like the gift of hospitality, we are told to be hospitable to one another. Uh, The gift of encouragement, we are to encourage one another, yet there are individual gifts of hospitality and encouragement, meaning some people excel in these gifts. We all have a general responsibility to do evangelism. So please don't say, oh, well, that's not my gift, therefore I'm not going to do evangelism. Now, here's what I want to do. A couple weeks ago, we looked at this passage in Colossians 4. It's really the prime passage in the New Testament Uh, that tells us the attitude, the mindset that we need to have in personal evangelism, all right? And um, I want to zero in on three words, okay? Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders, toward unbelievers. Make the most of every opportunity. Here's the word that I want you to see, opportunity. Do you view your going out into the world, whether it's going out to get your mail, going to the store, going to work, driving in Wausau, okay? Do you view every time you have contact with unbelievers as an opportunity? Now, the person with the gift of evangelism says, yes! I get to go out and be amongst unbelievers today. And it's an opportunity. Okay? Now, for some people, that's just their gift. For others, Paul is not saying this is only for those with the gift. This is for all of us. We need to adopt that mentality that every time we come in contact with an unbeliever, it is an opportunity to try to move the conversation a little bit further toward the gospel. Now, you know you have the gift if you're a person who loves to be out where the action is. Okay? Half the time we read about Jesus, where is he? He's eating with tax collectors. There's prostitutes around. There are sinners. He gets criticized for it. But... He's like, yes, let me at them. If if that's you, if you're like, my wife, she's just like, everywhere she goes, she's just, I love unbelievers. She's trying to lead them to the Lord, right? It's it's what, 1030? She's probably led four people to the Lord already, right? Not in Wausau, though. Not in Wausau, okay? Um, So that's the first thing. 
do you have uh, a, uh, a view that sees every contact with an unbeliever as an opportunity? Now, here's the next word I want us to look at. Let your conversation always be full of grace. What does that mean? Here, we're going to go really deep. It means be nice. Be nice. You know, um, one reason I believe a lot of Christians are not good at evangelism, they're just not very nice. They're not happy, gracious, nice people. They've been so tainted by the rest of the world that's not happy, gracious, or nice that they've been so influenced that they're just like the rest of the world. The foundation for personal evangelism is grace, is being a pleasant, nice person. Now, um, as I prepare a message, I always evaluate myself. I'm like, am I a, a, a nice, gracious person, especially in public? And um, first, I gave myself a really high grade. I mean, who could be nicer than me, right? Um, But then I realized I can be like Jekyll and Hyde, okay? And I I thought, when am I in public the most? Well, I go for my two-mile run every day. Um, And I realized that when I'm running, okay, here's, here's what I do. I leave my house. And I run down to the river, cross the three bridges, down uh, underneath the Wilson Street Bridge, up uh, by the McDonald's, to the Peg Bond Center, to the River Walk, and that's about a two-mile run. Then I walk home. Now, when I'm running, I'm intense because I'm in pain. The knees are hurting, the feet are hurting, I'm fat and out of shape, I'm running, and I'm, I'm, I've got a, an agenda, I'm timing myself, okay? So people are irritating. They're in my way. Get out of the way, Grandma, I'm coming through, right? In fact, um, I was running the other day, and there was a wedding party getting their photographs being taken down at the island in, in Batavia, I'm like, get out of my way. Just because she had a white dress and a veil, she's in the river now, right? Um, because people are irritating when I'm into, into myself. Even nature. Um, you know those, those red-winged blackbirds that swoop at you? Two of them bopped me in the, in the head. So the other day I'm running and I see him coming and I turned on him and I'm like, bring it. Bring it. And I was going to grab him and rip his head off. Okay? Dogs. There's this one area I go, and there's a dog that comes rushing out at me, but he's, uh, he's got the collar on, and it stops right at the sidewalk. That's where the electric thing is. So it's dog comes, and I stopped. Like, there's the edge, and I stopped right there. And we had a stare down for about 10 minutes. And I was waiting for him to look away, and I bopped him upside the head, and he went running away. So I'm a mean guy when I'm running, OK? 
Okay? Now, when I'm done and I walk back, I am the nicest guy. I'm like Floyd the Barber in, in Mayberry. You know, hey, Andy. Then Malou, how are you? I'm petting dogs. I come home. My wife says, how was your run? Great. I met two new dogs, took their pictures, you know, talked to people, ran into the male lady. She had a hysterectomy. Did you know that? How would I know? She told me the, all the whole story, all right? I am the nicest guy when I'm walking. So then I had to evaluate, am I more like running Brian or walking Brian most of the time, okay? So let me ask you, when you go to work, are you running Brian or walking Brian? When you're at Walmart, are you running Brian or walking Brian? I think what this is saying is, before you get into the mechanics of how to share the gospel and talk about the words and you just need to have a platform of niceness. In fact, let me show you an interesting verse. Matthew 5, 46 and 47. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. Now look at this. And if you greet only your brothers. In other words, you're on your way to work. Do you greet people? Or are you kind of self-absorbed and they don't greet you, so you don't greet them? Matthew 5 commands you to be a friendly, greeting person. When you're at work, when you're at Walmart, when you're going out to get your, your, your mail, you are to initiate the hello to others, even if you don't like them. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. Okay? Some of us, when it comes to evangelism, rather than reading a book on how to explain the God, some of us just need to wake up and be nice people. Not let the mean world taint you so you're just like it. Okay. Now, one more word. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Here, seasoning, you're trying to tactfully sprinkle some gospel in the conversation. Now, here's the one thing I want to say about that. Salt is supposed to season the food. But have you ever dumped too much salt on your food? Okay, the other day we were eating hamburgers, and Caitlin says, Mom, I love your cooking, but I can't eat this anymore. It was a hamburger. She goes, is this a new recipe? And, she, and Elizabeth said, yeah, uh, you're supposed to have folded the salt and the seasoning into, instead of, instead of just sprinkling it on top, she folded it into, and it was a salt burger. It was overpowering. Okay, here's what happens. The pastor usually says, come on, people, let's step up our personal evangelism. And people go out and they go, oh, I feel guilty. And they overpower their family and their friends with the gospel. Okay, 
What, what this is is a be nice, be gracious, look for every opportunity, but learn to tactfully, gracefully flavor your conversation with the gospel. In other words, you try a little and you see if they respond. If not, you back off. And then you try a little bit more. And I'm working for uh, their permission. I'm working for, uh, for them to say, yes, I'd like for you to tell me uh, what you would like to tell me about spiritual things. That's what I'm working for. But you don't just go from point A to point B. You, you have to use tact and grace and season it with salt. Okay? All of us need to be working on this. But those who have the gift of evangelism, this comes much more naturally. Now, what we need to do is watch those who do this naturally and see what we can learn. Okay? So that's the gift of evangelism. In fact, I don't know. Why not do this? Anybody think they have the gift of evangelism? Raise your hand if you think you have the gift of evangelism. That explains a lot right there. Okay. (laughs) All right, let's move on here. The utterance of wisdom and the utterance of knowledge. Uh, Some translations say the word of wisdom or the word of knowledge. Now, question. Is this a supernatural gift where God pops wisdom and knowledge into your brain? Or is this more of a natural gift? In fact, uh, that's the question I asked as I read it. And then I looked at the ESV study note. It raises the same question. Some understand these to be miraculous gifts, words of wisdom and words of knowledge, by which a speaker is given supernatural wisdom or knowledge from God to impart to a situation. Others take these to be more natural gifts, the ability to speak wisely or with knowledge into a situation. The Greek expressions logos sophias and logos gnosis occur elsewhere in the Bible, or occur nowhere else in the Bible, and Paul does not give any further explanation. So it's difficult to be certain. So, by the way, whenever you're, you're hearing a teaching on spiritual gifts and they go way too in-depth as to what the gift is, be careful, because Paul gives the list, but he doesn't define all the words meticulously. We have to do some speculation here. So when people say, well, I've always taken this to be a supernatural, God, God brings supernatural wisdom to your mind, where are you getting that? Okay, here's what the ESV says. But since Paul already has a different, broader term that he uses to refer to speech, based on something that God suddenly brings to mind, in other words, the gift of prophecy, the second view seems preferable. In other words, the ESV is saying, since the word prophecy means something God brings to mind, and we're going to talk about prophecy in days ahead, what, oh, there's controversy over that, that, that gift, okay? But since that word describes God giving supernatural knowledge and wisdom, these probably are referring to a more natural use of wisdom and knowledge. Now, that's the ESV's speculation. But uh, let, let me say this. Who was the wisest man who ever lived? Solomon. King Solomon, in fact. God gave Solomon, okay, God gave Solomon wisdom and very great insight. 
in a breath of understanding as measureless as the sand on the seashore. Solomon's wisdom was greater than the wisdom of all the men of the east and greater than all the wisdom of Egypt. In fact, another verse says, no one before him was wiser and nobody who ever lived after him will be wiser. He was the wisest man who ever lived. Now, God gave him wisdom. So how did he do it? Did he just pop did he give a, like, take a zip drive and stick it in his brain and boom, he, is, was it a supernatural thing? Look at this. He writes, I devoted myself to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under heaven. What a heavy burden God has laid on men. And in Ecclesiastes 12.12, 12, he says, Be warned, my son, of anything in addition to them, of his writings, of making many books. There is no end in much study wearies the body. I'm going to put those two together and say God made Solomon the wisest man who ever lived, but it wasn't a zap. It was a quest that led him to study. All right. So you go, I have the gift of wisdom. I have the gift of knowledge. Do you study? Are you a student? Are you a book reader? Are you a Bible scholar? Then you probably don't have these gifts. Now, if there's a distinction to be made between knowledge and wisdom, it could be this. Knowledge is the accumulation and understanding of facts. Okay? Wisdom, on the other hand, is the ability to apply knowledge to everyday life. Okay? In other words, there can be people, and you've met people like this, who are extremely knowledgeable, but they can't tie their shoes. And then there are people who've never been to college, but they're street smart. They're very wise. Okay? Let me illustrate it. Um, two stories about Einstein. They're probably not true. They're apocryphal stories. But the story is told of Einstein walking down the sidewalk one day, and a student comes up, and he says, Professor, I've been trying to solve this equation, and I can't figure it out. Can you help, <coughs> Can you help me? And Einstein says, sure. Reaches in his pocket, takes out some chalk, bends down, and solves the equation on the sidewalk. <coughs> Sorry. Um, and then he stands up, and he says, did, did that help? And the student says, yes, thank you so much. Now, Einstein says, maybe you can help me. Was I walking in that direction or that direction? Okay. You know people who are extremely smart, not so wise. Okay. Now, there's another story told of Einstein. He's being driven to a lecture. And his chauffeur says, hey, professor, this will be my hundredth time hearing this same lecture. I bet you I could deliver it myself. And Einstein says, okay, bet is on. We'll switch clothes. I'll, put, I'll dress in the, in the chauffeur outfit and put my hair under the hat. Here, you put this wig on, and you deliver the lecture. So he's introduced, say it's at Harvard, and he delivers, the, the, the chauffeur delivers the lecture flawlessly, and they're all clapping. And as he's ready to leave, the, uh, the host says, Professor, would you mind if we took some questions from the audience? And he goes, um, sure. And one student raises his hand and says, Professor, could you explain 
how your theory of relativity and the calculus involved uh, coincides with this, this problem related to Newtonian metaphysics. And the chauffeur goes, um, you know, I'm embarrassed for you that you would ask such a simple question. In fact, that is such an easy question. I bet you even my chauffeur in the back of the room could answer that for you. That's wisdom. Okay? So, if you have knowledge, you are great at facts. You know, there are some, some people who are great at theology facts. And we need those people. Okay? But can they apply them? There are other people who uh, maybe they, they don't know all the different theological schools of thought, but as they read the Bible, they are applying wisdom as they go, and they can help other people apply wisdom. Right? Let's move on to the last one. Distinguishing between spirits, or as it's translated in some places, discernment of spirits. The gift of being able to discern whether certain teaching is of God or of Satan. Now, can I give you a warning here? Some of the most undiscerning people I have ever met were sure they had the gift of discernment. Okay, what's your gift? Oh, discernment, and their life is a mess. Right. Here's the problem. If you're run by emotions, a lot of times people who are run by their emotions confuse that with the leading of the Holy Spirit. And they go, well, God gave me discernment. How do you know? Well, I felt it. I'm going to suggest, not that we ignore our emotions, but that Holy Spirit discernment involves far more doctrinal discernment than emotional feelings. Okay, so let me come back to that in just a second. Uh, be careful that you don't call yourself discerning just because you feel deeply. In fact, emotions can lead astray very easily. But then there's a second misunderstanding of discernment of spirits. Um, there are those who are really into demons and going around trying to identify, ooh, it's a demon of this or a demon of that, a spirit of this or a spirit of that, um, in fact, let me take you way back, 25 years ago, when Elizabeth and I uh, were first married. We went to a little church in Wisconsin, and um, she worked for a doctor, and the doctor had a patient who was convinced that he was possessed by demons, and he loved talking about his demons. And he was open to talking to Christians and to pastors, and the doctor said, let's have us an exorcism. Okay, so I'm a, a one-year-old associate pastor going to an exorcism, okay? And we brought the senior pastor, me, Elizabeth, and some ladies in the church who were really into demons. And we went to the doctor's office, and there was this guy sitting in the chair, very nice guy. And um, so we talked to him a little bit, and we said, all right, let's pray. Now, if there's a demon, manifest yourself. And all of a sudden, he started talking like this. <laughs> And it was kind of freaky. 
Um, and then the ladies, who were really like highly charismatic ladies, one of them opened her Bible, and in the back of the Bible, she had a list of the names of demons. And she started playing Name That Demon. Are you a demon of lust? No. Are you a demon of ragweed? You know, I, she had a whole list of demons. And he said, no, think bigger. <laughs> it, was, it was almost silly. And he said he was actually Satan himself. Like, Satan's got nothing better to do than hang out in this little town in Wisconsin and possess a guy in the doctor's office. Okay, uh, Now, we were... Uh, we were convinced, the pastor and I, that he was faking it. Which, um, what's worse, actually having demons or gathering a bunch of people and faking that you have demons? I mean, there's not a lot of, of sanity to either one of those situations, right? Um, I don't think that either feeling deeply or playing name that demon is what this gift is. Now, you go, does Scripture anywhere else talk about uh, discerning spirits? Yes, it does. 1 John 4, 1 through 3. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test. Okay, this is the idea of discerning or distinguishing. Test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. So he goes from the spiritual realm to teaching. There's a lot of false teaching out there. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. Notice he doesn't say name the demon, cast the demon out. In fact, here's what he's saying. Here's how you discern whether a teaching is from God or Satan. Now, there was the Gnostic heresy back then. The Gnostic heresy basically said uh, spirit good, flesh bad, body bad. Therefore, if Jesus really is God, he could not have had a real human body. So they were denying that Christ had a human body. And John is saying, doctrinally, this is how you can recognize the spirit of of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus has come in the flesh, in other words, that he had a real human body, that's truth. Those who are teaching that Jesus was a ghost or a phantom and he didn't have a real human body, that's error, and that is coming from some kind of a satanic influence. But the test, the way to discern, is doctrinally. Not what you feel, not by naming demons, but by listening to what they teach. In other words, the discernment of spirits has to do with knowing your Bible so well that you can tell whether the teaching is truly of God or not. Now, those who understand the various theological systems out there, you don't have to talk very long to somebody 
before you go, okay, they said this, this, and this, they're probably coming from this theological system over here, and if they believe this, then it's probably true that they also believe this, 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 and this, okay? I would say, because of my study of doctrine, I probably have the gift of discernment of spirits. I mean, I, I've only had to kick one person out of a Bible study. But this was many years ago. It was a men's Bible study, and there were two guys who showed up. And we were actually talking. It was a, a men's group, and we were talking about how to fight lust. Right? And every time we would come up with something practical, these guys would take over. And it, it wasn't just that they were participating. They were taking over, and they wanted to shift the discussion and say, well, any practical suggestion of how to fight a sin is legalism. They would call it legalism. And it didn't take long before I realized that, that these guys were studied in a system called antinomianism. Antinomianism is a formal theological system that basically says this. You're saved by faith alone. Uh, you're saved by grace. Therefore, you cannot judge anybody's salvation. And any, uh, any fighting against sin is legalism. And within a few minutes, I had him pegged. I knew that this is where he was coming from. And I, I thought to myself, I bet they probably have read this book and this author. So afterwards, I had this little conversation. And um, I said, hey, listen, um, I don't appreciate you trying to hijack this thing. Uh, and then he wanted to say, well, we were just studying milk. And um, I go, by the way, tell me where you get some of your thinking. There's a mosquito. Um, oh, well, he named the author. I knew who the author was. And uh, so I could tell he wasn't just somebody coming to a Bible study, but he was studied in antinomianism. And I said, um, thanks for coming. You are not invited back. You know what he said? Wow, it usually takes me three or four weeks before they kick me out of a Bible study. Right? But once you know your doctrine, you can talk to somebody in a brief amount of time and realize, oh, if they believe this and this, then they've bought in this whole system, and either that's biblical or it's not biblical. I mean, we've, we've had many heresies come through the church that we've been able to spot. Okay? And, and hopefully, I mean, that's the job of the pastor and the elders, to say, here's the truth, and when people start pushing an agenda that's outside of the truth, they need to be gently corrected. Now, hopefully, they will, uh, they will come to their senses. If not, then they're a danger to the others. So we lovingly have to say, there's the door. Let's help you through the door. Um, doesn't happen a lot. And by the way, that's only for those who have a set agenda trying to hijack the church. Most people, it's not a studied theology. They're just trying to work their way through. So don't be afraid and you say, oh, I was going to go to a Bible study, but now I don't want to say anything stupid and get kicked out. No, you're welcome to say lots of stupid stuff, okay? Uh, goes on all the time, right? Um, but the gift of the discernment of spirits, I would suggest, has far more to do with sniffing out doctrine than playing name that demon. Now, as we transition into communion, the ultimate doctrine that everything focuses around 
is what Christ has done for us on the cross. For Christ also suffered once for sins. I mean, stop right there. Um, There's a doctrine in some churches called transubstantiation, where the body and blood, uh, the bread and the wine, literally turn into the body and blood of Jesus, and it's an actual sacrifice. No. He suffered once, right there. That word once tells you that if your communion service actually is a sacrifice, something's wrong, right? Christ suffered once for sins. Now, there's a big trend today to to take the focus off the issue of the wrath of God being poured out upon sinners and Christ died in our place to pay for our sin. No, he suffered once for sins. It's all about sin. The righteous for the unrighteous. I've often said this. One word that sums up the gospel, substitution. The perfect God-man Jesus lived a perfect life in our place, and he died a perfect death to pay for our sin. It's all about substitution, the righteous one for the unrighteous. That he might bring us to God. The only way to God is through Christ. The coexist stickers are wrong. There is only one way to God through Christ. Why? Because no other way provides for your sins to be paid for and for you to get perfect righteousness. All other systems are works-oriented. The gospel is Jesus paid it all. Jesus lived a perfect life, and, and you are saved by faith alone, not by works that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh. Okay, there again, Peter's probably fighting Gnosticism. He was in the flesh. He wasn't a ghost. He was in the flesh, but made alive again in the spirit. He was resurrected from the dead in the flesh. The spirit brought him from the grave, but it's not only his death, but his resurrection that screams, sacrifice accepted. Right? So, Here we have the gospel. That's the center. Everything should stem from the gospel. And that's how you you discern truth from error. Deviations from this uh, are not from God. But while we want to be doctrinally accurate, we also want to just be emotionally moved that God became a man was nailed to a cross, died in our place, was put in a tomb. Three days later, he came out alive. And all who trust in that transaction and trust in Christ are saved from their sin. You don't need to fear the wrath of God. That's the gospel, and that's what we want to celebrate.